Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. All kinds of things going on. The EPA changes course on the RFS. We'll talk with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol, about that, what it means moving forward. The Biden administration has made some big proposals on immigration. What does it include for agriculture and of course we know the proposal is far from a done deal and these things get bogged down but what is the administration proposing and how would it impact agriculture we'll talk about it with alice crittenden with the american farm bureau federation and it is national ffa week we'll talk with christy meyer with the national ffa organization a little bit later on in the program but we'll start it off checking the news with todd neely dtn reporter todd thanks for joining us um Better late than never, I guess, for EPA. They finally, uh, yeah. they've uh, changed course here on the uh, on how they're going to approach the Tenth Circuit Court ruling. Over a year ago, uh, that Tenth Circuit Court said EPA was handling these small refinery exemptions incorrectly, and now all this time later, they're saying, "Yeah, yeah, I, we see your point. <laughs> We're changing. We we've changed our mind here." Yeah, you know, Mike, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, you know, when you read the statute itself, uh, there was really no reason for EPA to be granting uh, waivers to, to companies that never received them prior. You know, there, there's uh, there's a lot to be said for, uh, you know, a change in, you know, in administrations. You know, elections have, have consequences. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people probably suspected that this is the direction the Biden administration was going to go. Uh, you know, we're seeing a, a major green movement, you know, major moves on climate. Um, and ethanol has had a good story to tell from the beginning. But I do think that, uh, you know, we still have the Supreme Court that's going to handle this case and hear this case that was ruled on in January of 2020 on these exemptions. Uh, the very fact that the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case is interesting because, uh, you know, you only have 80 cases that are accepted by the court on average every year. And this was one of them. So. Uh, we still have that big hurdle to go through this spring when they when they hear that case, and I suspect that a lot of people are going to be on edge before them. But at the very least, this is certainly a good direction. Uh, the biofuels producers in rural America has kind of been waiting on this to happen, and this is a big deal. Yeah, we'll talk more about it with Brian Jennings in a few moments. But yeah, there's no overlooking the fact that the Trump administration was always trying to. Uh, kind of appease the biofuels industry while right. not wanting to make the oil industry mad. Uh, the Biden administration so far doesn't seem to have any problem at all making the oil industry right. mad. No, absolutely not. And I think, uh, you know, it's going to be, it's it's really a fascinating time. You know, we've seen so many ups and downs with, with the RFS over the years. And uh, these exemptions were one of those things that a lot of people were scratching their head as to what the Trump administration was doing. And you're right. I think Trump tried to thread the needle here between both sides um and obviously this is a major change of course um i i think we're going to see a lot more happen on this front you know it's uh we've got the rfs coming up supposedly sunsetting in 2022 and uh, we'll see where that that issue goes too as well meanwhile you have an interesting uh 
situation with an ethanol plant there in the state of Nebraska. Kind of give us a, a, a kind of the backstory here yeah. and, and bring us up to date. Well, yeah, uh, you know, there's a there's an ethanol plant in Meade, Nebraska, which is just north of Lincoln here in the southeast part of the state. Uh, back in 2007, uh, there was a company that built an ethanol plant right next to a cattle a cattle feedlot. Uh, the idea was it was going to be a closed-loop type of system, so they would use manure from cattle to, to fuel the plant rather than fossil fuels. Um, and so it was one of those plants that was highly touted, you know, got a lot of international attention for what it was doing. Uh, it came on some hard times. You know, they had some equipment damage there at the plant. They uh, switched ownership. Uh, and now they're at a point where this uh, this plant's becoming a real environmental hazard in that in that uh, small community. Uh, they've been taking on corn products that were uh, coated with fungicides and uh, it created a lot of environmental problems around the community. Uh, they've been, you know, taking these DDGs from that plant and putting them on farm fields. Uh, it's created a lot of health issues, a lot of uh, a lot of problems. And, and the latest, uh, you know, during the cold snap here in Nebraska, uh, we had a pipe freeze up at this plant. And so they've had a, a release of, of uh, waste coming from the plant into some of the nearby water waterways. Uh, the state's kind of keeping an eye on it at this point. Uh, but it's it's going to be tough. I, I suspect that this plant at some point will just have to shut down permanently. Uh, but right now they're not producing ethanol and they're trying to get a handle on the situation. So they were an outlier. They were doing things that other ethanol plants across the industry are not doing. Absolutely. This, uh, as far as we can tell, there's no other plant in the country that takes uh, corn seed that's coated with fungicides. And, uh, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of interesting because, uh, you know, at one point uh, it was selling it, you know, it was selling DDGs to the nearby cattle feedlot. And when they started accepting the other type of corn, they couldn't do that. And so they had to put the DDGs somewhere else. Uh, and, you know, they, they'd really come up against it. You know, they'd have problems with their lagoons and all sorts of things. And so it's, yeah, it's definitely not the, uh, the usual way that things are done in the industry, but it's, it's really a sad story nonetheless. Meanwhile, in Washington, in confirmation hearings this week, uh, Tom Vilsack expected to sail through. Some of the other choices by President Biden uh, going to have a lot tougher uh, road ahead of them to get approved. So, but uh, at least right. we should finally know that Tom Vilsack's back at USDA officially. Yeah, you know, I I don't see any reason, Mike, that this won't happen. Uh, the vote's supposed to happen today, I believe, at two thirty Eastern time in the Senate, and uh, it's quite expected that he's going to make it through. There's been some rumblings about, uh, you know, whether he was the right guy in terms of the way the left looks at it. Uh, but certainly, you know, USDA's new focus on race relations uh, and, and really clean up the agency in that regard um, kind of came into focus. And I, I think Vilsack has a pretty good history of, uh, of doing, doing things the right way. Um, I don't suspect here at the last minute that we're going to see any uh, turn against him at this point. I think it's going to be interesting. The push on climate policy uh, conservation yeah. programs. Vilsack's been a big supporter of those. At a time with high commodity prices, it's getting harder to get uh, land into the CRP. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you're right. I think this administration is definitely going to try to expand that. Uh, we'll see where that goes. But uh, certainly, uh, you know, a farmer is going to play a role in, in the climate in the climate moves that we're seeing. Uh, they're just going to have to be able to do more with conservation. And I think 
uh, probably down the road we're going to see that this is indeed going to happen. But, yeah, there's a lot out there for Vilsack once he takes the reins. It's going to be uh, a whole new day compared to when he was uh, first ag secretary. Yep, a lot has changed. It'll be interesting for sure. Todd, always good to talk with you. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much, Mike. DTN reporter Todd Neely. Up next, more on the big change of direction by EPA on the small refinery exemptions. We're going to talk with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Obviously, this is good news for the biofuels industry now. What does it mean moving forward? We'll talk about that next on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. Happy to have with us the new president of the National Association of Conservation Districts, Michael Crowder. It'll be interesting to see where we go with conservation, with this new push, with climate policies and things like that. What are your goals? What are your priorities for this coming year? One of my big goals is climate change as far as where the new administration is going with climate change. How is it going to affect farmers, ranchers, foresters? We want to make sure that we represent those producers in the right way with make sure the upcoming farm bill will have those issues that's best in mind for, for producers. So that's where I see climate change coming. There's also a part of that is food security and insecurity. We all know that 2020 was a hard year and someone our products didn't get to market and if we have food security you know it that's national security so that's important to all producers is that we have free flowing markets for the information important to rural america join us on adams on agriculture join us every tuesday for around the table brought to you by chs where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership every week we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative and we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you. Cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to really cook. First, you can't tell it's done by how it looks. Use a food thermometer. Then, always stir, rotate the dish, and cover food when microwaving to prevent cold spots where bacteria can survive. Fast cooking should still be safe cooking. And bring sauces, soups, and gravies to a rolling boil when reheating. Even for the most experienced cooks, the improper heating and preparation of food means bacteria can survive. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. 
more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, EPA now says it agrees with the 10th Circuit Court's ruling on small refinery exemptions to the RFS. Let's talk about it with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, when I saw that story come out, a lot of things came to mind. Some of the things came to mind were about time, what took you so long, better late than never. All these things were going through my mind. What what was your reaction when you heard the news? Hey, Mike, it's so great to join you again. And I, I think my reaction was, uh, my reactions were very similar to yours. It's like, why did we have to go through the, the pain and the suffering we did the last few years um, for EPA to come back around on this? But I tell you, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that this is the conclusion uh, EPA has taken. And frankly, they did it before Michael Regan was even confirmed to be the new mm-hmm. EPA administrator, which I think is encouraging. Um, you know, you go back to this, the RFS law, the statute itself said these small refinery exemptions were going to apply to everybody until 2013. Any refinery that was 75,000 barrels or less per day was going to be exempt from complying with the law, from blending ethanol and biodiesel. But after 2013, the law was very clear. You as a small refinery would have to apply for an extension of your exemption to keep that waiver in place that was followed under the obama administration it was not followed under the trump epa and that's how we ended up with you know gosh almost 90 of these small refinery exemptions the last few years and so our case in the 10th circuit was designed to kind of get back to the basics to the law on these small refinery exemptions we won that case of course a year ago in the 10th circuit and now um, it's about time, but <laughs> I'm very encouraged that the Biden EPA has said they agree with us on this. I guess I could add to my list the saying, good things come to those who wait, right? So uh, finally. But now this case is still going to the Supreme Court, though. Yeah, that's just it. I wish I wish this would be the final conversation you and I ha- would have about uh, small refinery exemptions, but Alas, it will not be because, as as you say, the Supreme Court wants to take up this case. That surprised us, to be honest with you. We thought uh, that they would not do that. Oral arguments are going to take place in the spring, and we think we'll have a decision out of the Supreme Court uh, probably by the 4th of July. Um, So we'll we'll be talking about this uh, again in the future. But doesn't this give us a real look to the future of how this administration and this EPA uh, plans to handle issues like this when it comes to biofuels, certainly a a departure from what we've seen the last four years. It sure does, Mike, and I think there's a couple ways to slice it. One, you mentioned the Supreme Court case. It means we're probably going to have to wait until that case is decided to, to learn how these 66 pending small refinery exemptions are going to be handled. However, 
the signal that the Biden EPA sent yesterday when they came out and and agreed with us on how these waivers should be handled means that small refineries don't expect to come crawling to EPA and asking for these waivers and getting them. They're going to go back to the basics when, frankly, only about seven, maybe eight of these exemptions were granted uh, instead of 20 or 30 or 40 of them. So I think the signal it sends for future refinery requests is, hey, we're going to rein these things in significantly, and that's a good thing. We're talking with Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. The big difference here, it seems, we know that the Trump administration, I mentioned this earlier, they always seem to try to appease the biofuels industry while at the same time wanting to make sure they took care of the oil industry. Uh, So far, the Biden administration has shown really no inclination at all that they're trying to take care of the oil industry and not really worried about making them mad. Yeah, I think I think that's accurate, Mike. I, I'd add that it's early, and uh, you know we've got mm-hmm. more work to do with the Biden EPA. But you know, an example of of the point you made when we uh, were were getting E15 year round, that was accompanied by another round of these refinery exemptions. It just seemed like every time the Trump EPA wanted to do something to benefit us, it was sort of saddled with some sort of benefit for the oil industry that undermined the renewable fuel standard. And that caused a lot of frustration for us. So I don't know. I think it's too early to tell if we can turn the page entirely. But uh, I'm, I'm pleased with the start, I guess, that we've got out of out of the Biden EPA. Yeah, to me, the big test for this administration and this EPA when it comes to biofuels is what role they Uh, have for biofuels in their green movement, their climate policy direction moving forward. Do they have a place for biofuels or are they just going to bypass and go all, want to go all EVs and things like that? To me, that's the big test for this EPA and this administration on biofuels. I couldn't agree more. That is absolutely the big test for the Biden EPA. Will they get pulled to the far left by those who um, believe mistakenly that we can electrify everything and do it quickly and sort of forget about what happened in the Deep South uh, last week with, you know, the Arctic air and the electricity going out and the problems stemming from that? Or will will their actions follow the words that they've been Uh, professing lately, which is we think agriculture needs to be at the table when it comes to climate. We think biofuels needs to be part of the discussion when it comes to climate. We know that agriculture and biofuels can play a significant and meaningful part in reducing greenhouse gas emissions if we're given an opportunity, if the playing field is level, uh, if the policies aren't biased in favor of one technology over another, and I think you're right, Mike. I think the real test is to see how the administration sort of handles that discussion with agriculture and, and biofuels. Yeah, it's it's early on. Uh, uh, so far, so good with how they're handling things, but uh, you still got to give them an incomplete until we see you, uh, how they handle that big test coming up. Uh, Brian, what happens to the lost gallons uh, from these uh, waivers that were granted? Well, there are other lawsuits. You know, we talked about the Tenth Circuit case. It's now going to the Supreme Court. 
There are other uh, lawsuits pending, Mike, that ACE and others have been involved in to try and recover some of those lost gallons. You know, the the nearly 90 waivers under the Trump EPA eroded about 4 billion gallons from um, from the statute. The Trump EPA did attempt to recover some of that back in 2019 when they proposed to reallocate some of those gallons to the 2020 RFS. Um, but then COVID hit, of course, and gasoline and ethanol and biodiesel use all uh, fell through the floor. And so that didn't happen. So there's still work to be done, both in uh, sort of the courts to try to recover some of those gallons. And then, you know, if we get back to a normal year, normal driving year with normal demand for gas and diesel, you know, quote unquote, normal demand for renewable fuels to see if the Biden EPA will follow through on reallocating some of those waivers as well. Meanwhile, we're watching closely what they're doing in the state of Minnesota, a proposal to go to an E-15 mandate there. What are your thoughts on that, what that could mean for the rest of the country, perhaps? Would that set a precedent? I think it could. You know, Minnesota sort of set a precedent way back when, when uh, E-10 was the standard fuel, and they, they kind of led the way in farmer ownership of, of ethanol facilities. Um, I know Ron Lamberty, our senior vice president, testified at a virtual hearing with the Minnesota legislature last week to support the move to E15 and to, to clarify questions that lawmakers had about retail equipment compatibility uh, with E15, which is always an important topic. So I, I think there are a number of, of developments going on at the state level that are, that are helpful for ethanol demand. You've got Minnesota looking at E15. You've got Missouri looking at E15. We're going to see a few states uh, um, introduce legislation to create these new clean fuel policies, sort of like California's, but better, that will create demand and value for lower carbon fuels. And ethanol certainly qualifies as one of those. And so I like the activity I see at the state level. I think that can hopefully inform some of the things we try to do, uh, frankly, in Congress in the coming uh, years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot happening right now. Brian, as always, thanks for uh, the uh, perspective and the overview. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. You take care. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Well, the Biden administration has uh, made an immigration reform plan proposal. What does it have for agriculture? And what uh, are its chances of, of even passing? We're going to talk about that next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the ag industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Ag. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Ag. We hope to see you online. 
Farmers and operators don't always have to get a new piece of machinery to get state-of-the-art performance. Intelligent Ag was built by farmers and innovators who deliver technologies to help you get the most out of your ag equipment, improve performance, and high return on investment. We offer the industry's most reliable flow monitoring and selection control solutions for air seeders and fertilizer floaters. The next time you're thinking about upgrading your equipment, consider Intelligent Ag. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Grain markets are mixed to higher with row crops and products sharply higher, while wheat paces with gains. Soybean contracts are continuing upward momentum, seen in overnight trade. On the Board of Trade March soybeans, trading 27 and three quarters higher at 1411 and three quarters. The May contract up 27 and a half cent at 1415. March corn trading four and a half cent higher at 555 and a half cent. The May contract up a nickel at 5.55 and a half cent for the wheat. Chicago wheat March trading seven cents lower at 6.57. Kansas City wheat March down eight and a half cent at 6.36. Minneapolis spring wheat March down five and a half cent at 6.32 and a fraction. The May contract down five and a fraction at 6.44 and a half cent. Cattle futures showed little reaction to higher placements on the cattle on feed report. Strong demand continues to override any bearish fundamentals. Hogs are resilient and continue to trend higher. The April contract up a dollar five at eighty six seventeen. The May contract up eighty at eighty eight sixty five. For feeder cattle, the March contract down eighty five at one thirty eight forty seven. The April contract down a dollar two at one forty two twenty two. April live cattle down a dollar forty two at one twenty one sixty two. The June contract down eighty two at one nineteen forty two. In cash cattle country, it's slow to start this morning. Significant trade volume will likely be delayed until Wednesday or later. Some asking prices are starting out at around $116 in the south and have not yet been established in the north. Beef cutouts are expected to be higher with light to moderate box movement. In the outside markets, the Dow is down 208 points, the Nasdaq composite down 321, the S&P 500 down 41 points, crude oil in New York, the April contract down 18 cents at 61.52 per barrel, the U.S. dollar index is trading higher. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. For the American Ag Network, I'm Kirsten Rall. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Congressional Democrats recently introduced an immigration bill backed by President Biden 
that would require farms to start paying overtime and provide an expedited path to citizenship for undocumented farm workers. The bill does not include any reforms to expand or replace the H-2A visa program for foreign farm workers. The legislation does include a path to legal status for illegal immigrants, including special provisions for ag workers that would make them immediately eligible for permanent resident status and a three-year path to citizenship. So there's a lot in here. Let's talk about it with Allison Crittenden, Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. All right, Allison, uh, from an agricultural standpoint, uh, what do you think of this proposal? Well, I think the biggest thing uh, that we see missing out of this, on top of some of the you know other provisions that you just mentioned, like overtime, that certainly causes heartburn, is that this really only seeks to address, you know, one part of our, you know, ag labor problem, and that's the current workforce. But it makes no changes at all to the H-2A program, which, um, you know, farmers and farmers that use it already recognize that the the program is in dire need of reform. So, um, you know, it adjusts status uh, for those undocumented workers, but um, it makes no changes to our H-2A program. Um, you know, which we you know, rely on as we continue to see farm workers age out of agricultural work or, you know, look to pursue other opportunities outside of agriculture. Well, obviously, this is not going to go through uh, as is. And we, what we've seen in the past is big attempts at uh, comprehensive immigration legislation really get bogged down and kind of break down as they as they make their way through the process. So uh, obviously there are going to be lots of changes. What does this tell us about the Biden administration and congressional Democrats' approach to the issue as far as ag workers are concerned? Uh, I think obviously we can see that they are incredibly focused on those uh, undocumented workers, um, but there's not a lot of attention given to you know workers that currently reside outside of this country. Um, so there's a lot of focus on wages as well, as you see from the, the overtime pay provision. You know, this is a bill that is titled the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021, but it certainly um, dabbles into other areas of policy that aren't immigration focused. So, you know, with any piece of legislation this big and this comprehensive, um, there are certainly other uh, provisions that maybe aren't as pertinent to, um, you know, the, the key messaging that you see. Um, for the bill. So it's looking at immigration status for undocumented individuals, but it's also looking to change employment law and the way that farms uh, currently operate. We're talking with Allison Crittenden with the American Farm Bureau Federation looking at the immigration proposal by congressional Democrats and the Biden administration. Uh, farm groups have opposed the requirement to pay overtime I believe that's mandated in California. How has that worked out there? Well, I think what you see in that state is instead of employees getting paid overtime for hours, um, you know, that exceeds that threshold. Instead, you end up in a situation where you end up hiring additional employees to all work, you know, up to that that 40-hour time frame. Um, so you just end up having to hire more employees to work fewer hours in a week to avoid paying that overtime. And if you remember that agriculture is already, you know, dealing with a workforce shortage, um, it further exacerbates our problems um, in regards to filling open positions on the farm because now uh, a job that maybe only really required one individual to fill it 
um, because of these extra costs, it now leads to the hiring of, of additional workers. So there's so been discussion jobs. of... Right. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, the, Mike. I would say it's good to well, create jobs, but, you know, it, it creates a lot of other problems throughout the industry. Yeah, you're you're limiting hours and yeah, it creates more jobs, but, uh, you know, limited jobs. And then you're the challenge of finding the workers. I mean, there's, it's kind of, uh, there's a lot to it. Uh, now there's been discussion about taking the bill apart, kind of taking parts out. This is usually what happens. A uh, comprehensive package has been proposed and you start breaking it down. So there's been talk about uh, taking some of the parts out of it and even moving them into an, a possible infrastructure bill. What can you tell us about that? Well, I think, you know, whenever you see these big immigration packages like this, um, it's a starting point for conversation. So as one piece of the puzzle um, and the details get, you know, more solidified and there's um, more cohesive agreement as to how to move forward, then perhaps that piece moves forward. Um, I think that's very well what you could see here. Obviously, to get agreement across all provisions of, of this legislation, um, you know, something that would pass not only the House, but also pass in the Senate with, a, you know, having to get to 60 votes. Um, there will have to be a lot of changes and conversations that take place. And it's probably uh, more expedient to have those conversations on a, uh, you know, step-by-step -step basis instead of trying to tackle this, this big mammoth bill all at once. Yeah, uh, you have to question why the administration would want to start off with something like this that tends to bog things down uh, instead of trying to maybe get some other things done rather than risk everything getting bogged down, as we've seen in the past, over an issue like immigration. Now, the H-2A program, that's been a point of emphasis for agriculture. Um, what specifically would agriculture like to see done with the H-2A program? Sure. So I think the first thing is making sure that the program is affordable for farmers to use. Um, in addition to having to pay the adverse effect wage rate, um, which you know, just we just figured out the numbers for, for 2021 and on a national basis, they were it's gone up 4.5%. But in you know some regions, that number has gone up, you know, over 6%. Um, so one, making sure the program's affordable, figuring out a wage methodology that's still enables farmers to remain competitive and stay in business and continue to employ individuals. And um, also looking at, you know, ensuring that the H-J program is available for all kinds of agriculture. Right now, the program is limited to only seasonal and temporary work. So those in dairy or livestock or greenhouse industries, mushrooms, um, they're not able to use the program. Um, we can always make improvements to the application process Right now, it you know requires several government agencies' involvement, and that's you know so complicated that most farms tend to work with an association, an agent, or a lawyer to help them uh, process that paperwork. Um, so I think those are three big areas um, where the H-2A program is is ripe for reform. How do you, how does agriculture view and address the issues that are brought up about? Uh, farm workers' living and working conditions and their concerns with those? Well, it's, I think, you know, if you're in the H-2A program especially, it's all of those working conditions are, um, you know, regulated. You have to go through a housing inspection before you're even allowed to have the H-2A workers arrive on the farm. So, um, you know, I would say that there are always bad actors. 
Um, and we certainly don't condone those actions, but there's already a system in place that ensures that, um, you know, farm workers are in safe living conditions. Finally, Allison, give us an overview again, um, and I, because I don't think a lot of people, unless you're running an, an operation, a dairy operation, or you're, you're uh, maybe fruits and vegetables, whatever, whatever the case may be, and you're trying to find workers uh, and, and retain workers, uh, you, unless you're directly involved in that, you still may, there are a lot of people I don't think realize what we're talking about here as far as a labor shortage for agriculture, what that means not only for those operations, but really for the country as far as food supply, food availability and price, things like that. Uh, kind of give us an overview where we're at with this when we talk about a shortage in ag labor. Sure. So you know, we hear from farmers um, very often that, you know, they have all these jobs available. They would you know, like to hire folks that are currently, you know, in this country. We'd like to hire you know, folks to, that are domestically here. Um, but they just can't get the numbers that they need to get the job done on the farm. Um, I think one metric that you can look at that demonstrates, you know, that we continue to see a workforce shortage is um, the the continued growth in the H-2A program. Um, you know, to use the H-2A program, you actually have to advertise um, and attempt to recruit domestic workers. And then once you prove that you are unable to hire anyone who's currently here in the country, um, you know, then you are allowed to bring in those H-2A workers. And year after year after year, we continue to see the H-2A program grow. Um, so I think looking at the growth of the H-2A program, recognizing that that only caters to a small subset of agriculture for folks that are engaged only in seasonal and temporary work, um, it's, it's so evident that there is a workforce shortage. Unfortunately, you know, the, the reality is if we don't solve this problem, um, you know, how can agriculture continue in the United States if we don't have uh, the labor to, to get the job done on the farm, to tend to the livestock, to plant and harvest the crops? Um, you know, solving this problem is really integral to ensuring that you know, we still have domestic food production in this country, um, which I think many people would agree is an element of national security. You certainly want to be able to produce your own food for your country and not have to rely upon other nations to provide us with our food source. Huge issue, and we'll see where this latest attempt at immigration reform takes us. We'll keep up to date by staying in touch with you, Allison. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Allison Crittenden, Director of Congressional Relations for the American Farm Bureau Federation. It's a heavy lift controversial topic great need out there to get uh, some meaningful immigration reform but can they come to some kind of agreement on how to go about it certainly uh, the whole country will be impacted by this and in particular agriculture as we look at it from an agricultural standpoint very much impacted by it but that affects everybody when it comes to food issues food security production availability price things like that it's national ffa week we'll talk with christy meyer with the national ffa organization next on aoa Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. I can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with Geeks on Site. Our geeks literally come on site. 
No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're talking with Justin Gilpin, CEO of Kansas Wheat. Last time we talked, you brought up some of those decisions that farmers will have to make when it comes to uh, what to plant. So now this winter weather and the impact on the wheat crop, that could influence those decisions, as you said, even more. Well, it certainly will. You know, we had just before this cold weather event, we were reaching points in southwest Kansas and feedlot country where corn and wheat were actually near even money for cash prices. So you had feedlots that were making decisions that were going with beginning to put wheat into their feed rations because corn basis was so strong in some of these countries. We were seeing wheat moving into the Texas panhandle into feedlots. And when you have prices like this where farmers can lock in not just for this crop year but for next crop year on some of these real crop prices, and if they're able to lock in some of their other input prices, it's certainly attractive for producers and it's really could affect what happens with our overall wheat acres and potential carryout projections. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Our guest this week is Jason Berkland, an Associate Vice President of Risk Management at Nationwide, here to share safety tips and reminders for Grain Bin Safety Week. Jason, this is certainly an important week for everyone who works in agriculture. Tell us what is the purpose and the goal of Grain Bin Safety Week. Grain Bin Safety Week is an advocacy program created by Nationwide to raise awareness about the hazards of entering a grain storage structure and to provide education and training about those hazards. We've dedicated a full week in February each year to support this effort. Uh, with the help of our great sponsors, we also run a Nominate Your Fire Department contest, and that's, that runs January 1st through April 30th. And we allow individuals to nominate their fire departments, their rescue teams, and we, we award grain bin rescue tubes and hands-on training. Fire departments are often the first and only line of defense when an entrapment occurs, uh, so we feel it's very critical to help ensure they have these life-saving resources. 
before someone sets foot in a grain bin, what should they remember? Yeah, they should always remember that there's many hazards when you get inside of a grain bin. There's engulfment hazards from flowing grain. There's atmospheric conditions, uh, mechanical and electrical hazards, and just the equipment inside the bin itself. So no one should enter a bin without thinking through those hazards and then making sure they enter safely, wearing the proper protective equipment and utilizing a spotter or an attendant to help them. We really want every farmer or grain handler to just stay out if possible. The zero enter mentality is, is what we want them to think about. That's Jason Berkland, an Associate Vice President of Risk Management at Nationwide. Thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of co-op ownership from CHS at cooperativeownership.com. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. It is a busy week. It's Grain Bin Safety Week. It is also National FFA Week. And joining us now is Christy Meyer, Communications Manager for the National FFA Organization. Christy, good to talk with you again. A lot of activities uh, across the country for National FFA Week. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. What are some of the different things that are going on, especially in this time of covid how is uh, National FFA Week being observed and celebrated? Yeah, so our chapters across the country are celebrating FFA and letting their community know what FFA has to offer and what agriculture education has to offer. A little bit different than in years past since we can't do quite as much in person. Um, one of the things that we definitely see is our students getting back to their communities through service projects. We've seen a lot of that, um, a lot of them reaching out to help their communities. Our national officers in the past have always gone on visits during this week, but instead they're doing virtual visits, and they have over 108 visits scheduled for this week virtually, so they really have an opportunity to touch more members and chapters than they would do if we weren't in person. Yeah, when we think of FFA activities, it's a lot of face-to-face -face interaction, uh, you know, in different settings, so COVID has really, I'm sure, changed uh, a lot of the things that happens in a normal FFA calendar year. It really has. But you know what? Our members and advisors are resilient, and they've definitely stepped up to the challenge. So what we found is they've adapted. Some of our members are still in person in school, so they're still able to have that face-to-face, -face, maybe with a face covering instead. Others are doing virtual or others are doing a hybrid. But what we've really seen is that they're taking that opportunity to see what needs are in their community and how they can help serve and how they can give back, really living out that FFA motto. And I think it's really an opportunity for us to talk to people about agriculture and what an important role it plays in our lives, especially during this pandemic and all of the pieces we've gone through. What about membership? Is it still growing? Yeah, it is. We're over 760,000 members strong, so we're very excited. And our alumni membership continues to grow. And actually, this week, we're celebrating 50 years of FFA alumni. So we're pretty excited. And in fact, today, Tuesday, is National Alumni Day. A lot of uh, alumni across the country. And, you know, 
uh, when you when you think about that growth that we have seen in membership, it's because you've been able to expand into uh, non-traditional areas for agriculture. We've seen the growth in the urban areas, and you've been able to reach out and bring uh, you know quite a, a diverse membership into the organization. You know, we really have, and we credit that with the um, reason that agriculture has so many diverse careers. You know, with 250 careers in agriculture, we think our youth are really seeing what an opportunity there is in the agriculture industry. And our agriculture instructors, they're just so amazing, and our FFA advisors do so much that if it wasn't for those teachers and advisors, I don't think we'd have near the interest that we do with our students. So how is the... I won't say the message hasn't necessarily changed, the core message hasn't changed, but how you deliver it and, and how you uh, show people that uh, all that diversity and all the different ways you can bring them in and agriculture uh, touches their lives and there are career opportunities for them, uh, how are you getting that message out? Yeah, you know, we're doing it in a variety of ways. I think the biggest message that we're sharing is really that FFA creates that future generation of leaders, right? Those FFA members are seekers and innovators and are going to be the people who change the world. So we try to get that message out through word of mouth, letting our members really talk to others in their community, share it with them. Social media, of course, is always big. So we always encourage people to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and really just kind of tapping into that interest of where our food comes from because we've really seen an interest in that in the last few years too, which I think helps us grow in some of the other areas of suburban and urban. And people really delve into it, especially the science and math piece of it, because I think when we talk about agriculture, sometimes it's easy just to think of one piece, but it involves communication, science, math, everything you can imagine agriculture touches. So Spreading that message of agriculture and agriculture awareness is actually easier than one might think. So you, you've got increasing membership, but at the same time, you have a lot of schools that have uh, financial um, issues, and we've seen some programs cut out, some ag programs cut out. We've also seen a need for more ag teachers. So you've got a lot of things happening here at the same time. Growth, good, but challenges still at the same time. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that we really want to advocate for our agriculture instructors. They play such a key role in our members' lives. Uh, they really influence them, not just for the education standpoint, but for that leadership piece. And we really, really encourage those um, schools to have agriculture education classes so they can have FFA chapters. And we're really thankful for all of our sponsors who help us make that a possibility to support our students and our teachers. And I would be remiss if I didn't share out with your listeners that Thursday is Give FFA Day. So if you want to give back to your local or state or national FFA, we encourage you to go to Give FFA Day and hashtag Give FFA Day and maybe see how you can give back to your local FFA chapter. Yeah, it's really important to support these programs, and um, they make a big difference in young people's lives, and then they go on to touch a lot of other lives in, in their careers and uh, throughout their lives. So uh, very important. Christy, always good to talk with you, and thanks for being with us. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. Take care. Christy Meyer, Communications Manager for the National FFA Organization. Again, it is National FFA Week, 
and uh, also Grain Bin Safety Week, two uh, very important observances. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to have more reaction to this uh, change of uh, direction by EPA on the small refinery exemptions and, of course, the latest on the confirmation hearings going on this week in Washington, D.C., with uh, several key positions that will greatly impact agriculture moving forward. A lot happening. We appreciate you joining us each day right here on AOA. Have a safe day, everyone, and hope you'll be with us again tomorrow. I'm Mike Adams. Stay safe, everyone. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.